0: This is exactly right. I'm Sarah Iyer.
1: And I'm Stephen Ray Morris,
0: hosts of the PurrCast. That's Purr with three
1: R's. It's a podcast all about cats.
0: We can't talk to cats, so we talk to people who know and love
1: them. Each episode we invite a fellow feline lover, comedian, celebrities, kitty caretakers, and animal artists, to name a few, and we gush with them about our favorite furry friends.
0: Tune into the Percast on Exactly Right Network for new episodes every Wednesday. Listen and subscribe to the Percast and all of Exactly Right's shows on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen.
1: Right Meow.
0: This is Exactly Right. line. This episode is part three in a series that begins with the prologue, Augusta, and is followed up in episode one, March 18th, 1990. Let's start with the concept of hearsay. Hearsay or word or mouth or gossip implies a passing down of information, a sort of real life game of telephone. So how does hearsay make its way into a case file like that of Jeanette and Jeanette Milbrook? Where would one hear that two children have been found? Not from their families, though we've been told by law enforcement that a case could not be closed without direct contact from the children or their family that proved those minors have been located. So what happened? When we began this investigation, Shante warned us that we might hear a lot of gossip. But here's the thing. We haven't. Not a single rumor. The only conjecture that might be called gossip has come down official channels. Whether it's been delivered to the family or to us, or recorded in apparently erroneous public records. There's no simple way to tackle this hearsay knot, so we'll do our best to snip at it thread by thread until there's some semblance of order. Let's begin where we left off last time with the twins' case file. The case file was closed in 1991. Of this, we are certain. We are less certain as to who closed it, certain in the official, we have paper sort of way. The twins' family is confident that they know. They say the original investigator visited them on April 8th, 1991, and told them that it would be closed because Jeanette and Danette had turned 17 and could not be legally made to come home. This is not how it works. Cases are not closed when a person is no longer a minor. Look at the pages of the Charlie Project with its age-progressed photos of children who went missing so long ago that they'd be nearing retirement age now. They're still there. You may recall that when we spoke to the original investigator, we were told the case was handed off to a juvenile officer named Westbrook, who he alleged had made contact with the girls. A family member reports having a conversation with Nick NCMEC in the early 1990s, and they were told to ask Westbrook because he was the one with the file and he was the one who was in touch with the twins. The family member reports that when she explained the girls hadn't been found, she was told, well, then go ask their mother where they are. It's worth noting that NCMEC does not have a record of this call and doesn't have many records from the 90s at all. We requested their paperwork, but we've been told it's policy not to share it with anyone other than law enforcement. We requested that the family receive it, but that is also against policy. To the best of our knowledge, all roads lead in one direction, and that's toward the original case investigator. He's now retired, and he closed the case in 1991, but the twins were not officially, at least according to their own paperwork, removed from NICMEC until 1993. What happened in those two years? The original investigator changed jobs in 1994 and moved into a teaching position. It's possible that this was clearance of his records, some regular sort of procedure, but we can only infer that. But if not, why the lag? After speaking to Robert Lowry, we understood how much NICMEC might be limited in such a situation. He told us, and I quote, We don't do investigation. What we do is, when a child is reported, we do have a police report prepared. Now, that doesn't mean we won't take a call from a parent, take the information about their missing child. We will open up a missing child case under what we call technical assistance. And because of the absence of an NCIC record at a law enforcement agency, we would be fairly restricted with what help we could provide. Like, for instance, poster distribution and images of the children. We have to have an agency to work with and for us to accomplish our work because we are a non-investigative agency. And frankly, we are a nonprofit that provides resources to law enforcement to help find and recover missing children. So in the absence of that, we would work directly with the family and provide whatever resources we can, although I'd have to stress we'd be extremely limited in the absence of an active agency. I have to agree with what Sheriff Roundtree said in 2013 in that article that you sent us. Which is that this is a terrible injustice to the family and that we, what I have to say too, is that we won't give up hope of finding these children and hopefully reuniting them with their family." End quote. We appreciate Mr. Lowry's sentiment, but we wonder how much can be accomplished with the erroneous information offered by the original investigator. Do you remember that file with the confusing notation that the incident report recorded in 2013 had come from a juvenile report? Well, we contacted the Department of Juvenile Justice and, with the signed release of the twin's mother, were able to put in an extensive request for information. There have been many agencies that were short on responses and long on error, but the DJJ was not one of them. They conducted a thorough search of their records using various misspellings, all the recorded birthdays, and a variety of other keyword search methods. They found nothing. They conceded that there might have been a health or educational file that had been destroyed as per policy after a certain number of years, but they had no record of the twins in their system. So how did Juvenile get there? Perhaps it is as Miss Louise remembers and that this officer, Westbrook, stepped in later after the case was closed and offered to help her. That might be why his name appears again and again despite no official involvement in the case. The original investigator mentioned Westbrook to us too. Specifically, he told us Westbrook was, quote, in contact with the twins, unquote, and he'd heard from Westbrook himself that they were trying to get to Texas. We told Shantae this. She laughed. The twins didn't know anyone in Texas. They didn't have a computer and it was 1990. They weren't meeting strangers online. In our interview with him, the original investigator made reference to school and so did the family. They'd heard through him of sightings of the twins. That investigator told them that the principal had seen the twins, and the principal has since passed away. We can't ask him. The investigator allegedly visited the school, then brought two different stories to Louise. First, he heard that they'd left home because their mother, quote, had too many kids, unquote. Next came the story that one of the twins was pregnant, and they both decided to leave. Stop there for a moment and unpack that theory. We know it's happened before. Pregnancy is scary, and so are parents. But remember that path the twins took. They asked their cousin and their sister to walk them home. How would that aid them in escape? There's another simple rebuttal to the pregnancy story. Both Shantae and Asiander, her older sister, were teenage mothers. By the time the twins disappeared, Asiander had two children and was on good terms with her mother. As with any parent, Louise would not have been overjoyed at the thought of her children becoming mothers so young. But time has proven that her reaction, both before and after the twins' disappearance is to support her children and help them learn how to mother. Had the twins had any major problems at school? Not that the family remembers or that we know of. We can't access their records and neither can the family, though Shantae has tried. As for their behavior, that's something we should discuss because it comes up in a few places. There had been a single school bus stop incident in 1989. As Shantae explained to us, the twins attended different schools for a year and they were in different grades. The precise reason for this is not totally clear. Danette may have been held back. We do know that she spent a year getting intensive educational support at another school and then went on to Lucy Laney with her sister. And in that year of separation, they rode different buses and they had to wait at different bus stops. Shante, who was at a third bus stop, watched all that I'm about to explain transpire. For several weeks, a girl at Jeanette's stop picked on her. It was run-of-the-mill bullying, that kind we all experienced or saw when we were young, and Jeanette tried to avoid her, but the girl kept at it. One day, Jeanette had had enough. She marched down to her sister's bus stop and confronted the girl. A fight broke out, and the kids from all three bus stops ran to watch. Just then, a police cruiser happened by, and the officer stopped and broke up the fight. He took down the girl's names, and that was all. They didn't receive any written summons, paperwork, assignment to a probation officer, or any of the other sort of acknowledgement that they were going to enter the juvenile system. That girl, Danette beat up, though, was related to an employee of the high school. The principal, in fact. Though the girl and the twins made up after their squabble, it could have left a bad taste in the mouth of the adult relatives. Maybe that was enough to make the original investigator assume what kind of girls the twins were. He definitely made assumptions about what they might have been up to. This is highlighted in an experience Shantae had with him after her sisters had gone missing. A week or two after the original investigator first visited her mother, Shantae was playing outside with her cousins at a friend's house. The investigator showed up in his county car. Based on what she remembers, it seems that he was there looking for the twins. It wasn't the first time someone had mistaken Shantae for one or both of them. That day, once it was clarified that Shantae was not one of the twins, he told her and her cousins to get in his car. He then drove them to Underwood Homes, a housing project in what is called The Bottom or Southern Augusta. According to the family, he told the girls that he had reports of the twins at the apartment of someone named Von Treese and that they were getting up to no good. They went inside and the twins weren't there. He dropped the girls back off and left. This was the sort of thing that went on in the spring of 1990 and Louise didn't find out about that trip until much later. No one asked her if she minded her daughter taking that ride. Since she was 19 years old, Shante has called the sheriff's office over and over. Once Westbrook died and no one was around to help, Louise lost all hope. And Shante decided that she, working full-time and the mother of two, would have to take over for her sisters. One particular call, which took place in 2008, is memorable. In the following interview, she explains the experience.
1: One day I decided to call down there after a co-worker of mine which I was working at Kmart at the time, she was helping me with looking for my sister now off of different websites that she knew about because she said her father, you know, does stuff like that. So she gave it to her dad or whatever, and they put it in. So when she told me that they couldn't find nothing neither, I said, I'm just, let me call down here and see what's going on because I still ain't heard nothing. And I said, I know my mama already said that she's sick of talking to the people because they ain't going to do nothing to help her. I said, but mama, these are your kids, you know. I understand your frustration or whatever, but we got to get down to the bottom of this and find out what happened to them girls because they're just, it's weird. So I called down there. I talked to someone on the phone. Don't remember her name, but they told me that I would need to get in contact with the defects office. I said, get in contact with defects for what reason? It said, because in the file that I'm looking at, your sister and them had been taken away from your mom. I said, my sister and them ain't never been taken away from my mom. I don't know what you're talking about. They said, well, yes, they have. I'm looking right at it. I said, no, they was not. I said, why would they take two kids out of a home if they're being harmed, and she got other kids too, and left them in harm's way, you know what I'm saying, left them to be abused or whatever the case may be. Why would they just take those two girls, particular girls, and leave the younger one still there? I said that don't make sense. So they told me, that, well, ma'am, I thought I could tell you right now. It's called Defects, and talk to people at Defects. So I did what they said. I called Defects. When I called the defects office, they told me that they had no recollection of my sister now being taken away from my mom. I said, well, I just got off the phone with the Richmond County Sheriff's Department, and that's what I was told. They said they had paperwork saying that my sister now was taken away from my mom. The lady was like, no, ma'am, I don't think I could tell you unless they had been put in foster care. And if they've been put in foster care, you have to contact the foster care agency. I said, well, how would I contact them? And she said, well, I'm going to give you this number right here. So the lady at the defense office gave me a phone number. The foster care agency that I contacted is somewhere in Atlanta. They told me they couldn't tell me nothing over the phone for me to fill out some paperwork. And once I fill the paperwork out, I, I could send it back to them and then they would let me know. But from their recollection, what they see, she said, uh, don't ma'am. They would not uh, be put in foster care if your mom didn't know anything about it. Even if so, if they had been put in foster care, they might not have told your mom where they were at. But your mom would have had to know that her kids had been taken away, that they had been put up for adoption or put in foster care. But who won't put 17-year-olds in foster care? For what reason? They almost grown. I said, is this your sound right? the they was like, no, it, it doesn't. She said, I don't even know why would they tell you that. I was like, I don't know either, you know. But it's, they, sent, they did send me the paperwork, but I never filled it out. I didn't fill it out because I already know nine times out of 10, they wasn't putting in no foster care at no 17. And then I already knew off top, even though, yeah, I was young and I don't know too much about a lot of stuff but that I know they can't they're not going to take your kids away from you without you knowing.
0: You have to sign documents.
1: Exactly. And then they got to give you a chance to even, you know, say, well, let me fight for my kids. Let me do the right thing so I can get my kids back. They didn't give her that chance. So how could you tell her that her kids been put in foster care? It makes sense to me. How could this
0: happen? Well, we've made a guess. Another relative with the last name of Millbrook had children in the system at the time. Could the officer have looked at those last names and not read on? Could this be the source of the confusion? After we received the twins' incident report through open records and the other information we requested in search for possible leads and suspects, we attempted to schedule a meeting with Sheriff Richard Roundtree. We didn't speak to him, but rather to an administrative assistant. We also sent a letter at nearly the same time and we were eventually told that he would be too busy to speak with us this summer. She offered to get us a meeting with someone else. As we tried to gain access to the sheriff, Shantae did as well. You see, though he reopened the case in 2013, he has never met this family or even spoken with them. When she called, Shantae was asked for further details of the case and was told that what she said could simply not have happened. Then she was told that the case had never been closed. She would not have a meeting with the sheriff. She was, as one might imagine, frustrated. More than that, she was exhausted. So we gathered up the articles from the Augusta Chronicle and forwarded them to his representative with the pertinent quotes included. We made sure to highlight the department's own words, hearsay, injustice, closed, removed from Nickbeck. Soon enough, we got another phone call. This time, a lieutenant phoned us, and not Shantae, to say the sheriff's office would not participate in any podcast. We asked if he would like to issue a statement on behalf of the department and he declined. He did offer to let us bring in the information we'd gathered so far if we had any. However, we were told that we could ask no questions at this meeting, that it would not be an ambush. We did have findings and possible leads, so we agreed. But we also asked if the family might attend and we were told that they could as long as they too understood that they could not ask any questions. Another officer called to arrange this meeting. We met Shantae and Louise at the sheriff's office, and Louise, who walks with the help of a cane, had a hard time making it upstairs. When we were called back to the meeting, we had an immediate issue. We were told that there were too many of us and that only two could go back. When we explained that the lieutenant had told us the family could attend, the answer was that we had not scheduled the meeting with the lieutenant, but with him, the sergeant. We made the choice to send one host and Shantae and have the other host wait with Miss Louise. Miss Louise's face was hard to read. She quietly flipped through old magazines, and she waited. As people came and went on business, each one of them greeted her with a polite hello, and the contrast was unsettling. During that meeting, my co-host reported the errors we'd found in the case file. She was reminded that they have no control over those mistakes, and that the 90s were a long time ago. We completely agree, but they might be corrected now, and that new information might help uncover leads that, to our understanding, just haven't been there. She was reminded that there is no dedicated cold case investigator and that the department is understaffed. Again, both facts are true. After all, we were meeting with a homicide detective and no doubt he had some juggling to do to make time for another meeting on his roster outside of his area of specialty. We did not ask questions and Shantae did not ask questions. My co-host handed over the map, the research, the connections we made between one crime scene and another, and all the little details that seemed to create leads, or at least the beginning of leads. And to his credit, the detective seemed to listen. When we began to discuss DNA and all the comparisons not made at the time the twins' case had been closed, he took careful notes. He searched the system. When we left, he gave Shante his card, and he told her that he wanted her to call him personally from then on something that no one else in the department had ever done. The reopening of a case is not about the deeds or misdeeds of any department. It's not about the embarrassment that might be felt about the past or even the present. It's about missing children and the fact that no one is looking for them. As the original investigator of Danette and Jeanette's case said near the end of our phone interview, quote, I don't have any reason to believe they're not alive, but if you find two dead twins somewhere, let me know. Next episode... Theories. We go through the unlikely scenarios and those which hold merit and walk you through our discovery of possible suspects, situations, and scenarios. Stay tuned, spread the word, and remember we must find Annette and Jeanette Milbrook. The Fall Line, an investigative podcast focusing on unsolved cases in the Southeast, is back this August with Season 5. This series covers the 1998 disappearance of Shikimia Pate, an 8-year-old from Unadilla, Georgia. As a little girl, I can remember that uh, Sha was very energetic and bubbly. Seldom
1: did you see her without a smile. She had a beautiful smile. She, she was just a real bubbly, smart, smart little girl.
0: Shikimiya was excited to spend that Labor Day weekend with her family, starting with attendance of the first high school football game of the season. In their tiny town of Unadilla, Georgia, that was a big event. That Friday afternoon, Shikimiya stepped off her front porch and onto the sidewalks of the street she'd lived on her whole life. She planned to wait outside for a ride from her older sister. She was seen by neighbors, friends, family. Everyone thought she'd made it to see the Dooley County Bobcats play. But she never made it there.
1: And so I thought Swan had took her to the game until 1230 that night when Veronica called me and told me, she called me, she asked me, what's well, shy with me? And I said, no, nah. I said, you mean you don't know what shy at? I called the police, but nobody, he didn't come. And then when he did come, he said she had to be missing 24 hours before they'll go looking for her.
0: Shakemia Pate vanished right off her own street. Though her disappearance is as mysterious and as arresting as that of Madeline McCann, she has received very little attention. Despite a $20,000 reward and exhaustive work by Shakimia's family, Veronica Pate, her mother, has been left waiting for 21
1: years. She made an effort to be optimistic that, that she would be back. She kept trying to prove that it's going to be all right, leaving the door unlocked, leaving a light on, because Shasha had come to home.
0: Each hour in the missing person's case matters. So what about a cold case unsolved for decades? Some of the things that we run into working cold cases is that these cases, I mean, they're old and um, people's memory is not what they used to be. Memories fade, people die. Few outside of rural middle Georgia have ever heard of Shaikimiya Pate, but maybe with your help that can change. This season on the Fall Line from Exactly Right, we work with Shaikimiya's family, the local sheriff and the Georgia Bureau of Investigations to produce detailed coverage of her case and generate new leads. 2019 has seen decades-old cold cases come to a close. And so it's time to give Shakimia's open case and her mother's open door the attention they needed, deserved, years ago. This is The Fall Line. We hope you'll join us on August 7th for Episode 1, September 4th, 1998. ¶¶